the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or estate law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. Call him now at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622 and Ask the Lawyer. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, horses Thanks to David Kincaid for bringing off the show again. We're in the Trinity Building, hollowed ground in downtown Manhattan, Wall Street and Broadway, next to Trinity Church and the Trinity Church Graveyard. Alexander Hamilton's buried there, among others. Now, this show, those of you who don't know, it is the first half of the show or the first part of the show is about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes that we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Our job as elder law attorneys is to keep the assets within your family and keep it safe for your children or other heirs. Now, if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, you know, now's the time to call us because the second half of the show, we're going to do a couple of interviews, and we're going to, do, we're going to be talking to William Hazelgrove about Teddy Roosevelt and his days in the West. And then after that, we're going to talk to one of the most remarkable men that I've interviewed over the years, Colonel Dr. Brown. And if you want to call us about estate planning and elder law, the phone number is 1-866-970-9622. 1-866-970-9622. In the meanwhile, I guess we'll try to catch up on our email questions. Beth, what is our first email question tonight? Our first email question is from Sam. A husband can transfer all assets to a wife, and a wife can transfer all assets to her husband if either one is going to a nursing home. Absolutely true, by the way. Okay. Is there a five-year look-back period, and what is the maximum amount of assets in the estate to be eligible for nursing home care? I live in the state of New York. Thank you. Yeah, it's very important what state you live in. There's no really no act maximum. Now, let's say the husband has a stroke, he has to go to a nursing home. If the husband can transfer virtually all of his assets to his wife's name, let's say somebody had a stroke in early August and he can transfer all of his assets to his wife's name on or before August 31st, on September 1st, the first day of the month following the transfer, the husband can apply for medical assistance Medicaid to pay his nursing home bill. The wife has to sign a spouse refusal. And the husband's eligible. There's no limit on that. Now, soon after that, the wife should do some planning because her assets are up on the limb. The city might sue for support, things like that. So we want to protect, in this case, the wife's assets. But technically, there's no limit. The person applying for Medicaid cannot have more than $14,850 in his or her name alone when they apply. The spouse could have a million dollars. You know, so 
Mm-hmm. Husband has a stroke, transfers all his assets to his wife. And that's where a power of attorney is very important because a lot of times when the husband has that stroke, he may not be mentally competent to transact business. He may not have legal capacity to sign his own name. And that's where a power of attorney can be extremely important, especially between husband and wife, not only between husband and wife, but especially between husband and wife. There's no automatic right in New York State for a husband and wife to sign each other's name. You need a power of attorney, and you need a specially drafted power of attorney if we're going to switch a substantial amount of assets from husband to wife or wife to husband, and then maybe eventually to a trust for the benefit of the children. Uh, and, and I can't stress this enough because a lot of people think, well, I don't need a, a power of attorney between, between husband and wife because all my assets are joint. That very well may be true, and that allow you to switch bank accounts. It does not allow you to sp- switch a house, a deed to the house, let's say, that's between husband and wife. It doesn't allow you to switch a stock certificate to a co-op that may be joint between husband and wife. It may not allow you to, let's say, if you own shares of stock in AT&T or Brooklyn Union Gas or whatever it is between husband and wife if both names are on the stock certificate. You need a specially drafted power of attorney. And, again, if you want to come into Connors & Sullivan, we can draw that power of attorney up to you and talk about estate planning. And if you're in an emergency situation, you got a spouse going to a nursing home, Please see us right away because Medicaid works on a month-to-month basis. Yes, Beth? Can you please explain to people the difference between the assets and income? Because that's always confusing. Okay. Income, Social Security, pension, distributions from an IRA. Um, Assets are assets that you own, uh, house, stocks, bonds, insurance policies. You know, income is the money generated, what you would file on your income tax return. Now, some states, you know, treat different assets differently. Like for the VA, and I understand New Jersey, although I'm not 100% sure, an IRA account is an asset, not income. In New York, the IRA is not an asset. The distributions are income. So there are confusions because there are different rules in different states and for the VA. And, for instance, for the sake of argument, if somebody wanted to pay – uh, apply for a VA benefit, and we should probably talk about this some night. Um, the VA limit usually is $80,000, but that's $80,000 for a couple and counts all your IRA money as an asset. New York State is $14,850, but it doesn't count your IRA money, and it doesn't count your spouse's money. So sometimes it gets a little tricky because the different rules for different states and the different rules between the you know, VA and New York State. Again, an IRA account is not an asset for New York State. It is for the VA. So if you want to apply for VA aid and attendance, the husband and wife together can't have more than $80,000 worth of assets. Now, if you have an IRA, you can annuitize it and make the, change it from an asset into income. Let's try to squeeze this uh, call in, I hope, anyway, from Maria. Yes, Maria, what's your question? Hi, my mom would like to leave her house to her cat when she passes. Can she do that? <laughs> well, she can't give it directly to the cat, but she could set up a trust, you know, where the cat has a right to live in the house and so forth, and the assets can be used to support the cat. And there are cases where that does happen. Now, somebody else has to be the trustee for the cat because the cat can't legally sign his or her own name. But, yes, she can do it. She needs somebody else to be a trustee. And, of course, if we do something like that, the one thing we need to do is have the what if, because I hope, no offense to your 
cat, but I hope your mother outlives her cat. So even if she doesn't, I hope you know she doesn't out the cat doesn't outlive her by that much. But yes, she can do it. Uh, you know, cats usually don't need a lot of support after they're gone. So I, I yes, we can put assets in trust for the benefit of a cat, but you know, give it some thought, and then we have to figure out who's getting the asset after the cat is gone, which shouldn't be that long because cats' life expectancies. You know, are not the longest, and and a pet, an animal companion trust by law has to end in theory twenty one years after the person dies. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right, Maria. Thank you for the call. All right. So, what should we talk about? Auto now? No. We, um, we have a new. We have a and new. And Otto's person. not getting any part of our house. So Otto is our new Schnauzer, and he is three months old. And he is I don't want to be like all these other radio hosts that talk care. about their Otto. dog. Otto is precious. He's he's a dog. He's a precious little dog. He's a nice little dog, but he's a dog. He's not a human being. He's precious. Okay, he's not a little guy in a furry suit that thinks and <laughs> you know, he's a dog. He's, he's a not a person. Precious little dog. And you know, you got me completely thrown off my track right now, <laughs> thought. <laughs> Otto does things like that. <laughs> yeah, well. Oh. Okay, well, like I said, I'm completely thrown off. I guess we need to take a break. We're off schedule already. James, <laughs> we'll take a break. We'll be right back in a couple of minutes. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, August 15th at Connolly's Corner, 71-17 Grand Avenue in Maspeth, Queens at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. at Lenny's Clam Bar, 161-03 Cross Bay Boulevard in Howard Beach, Queens on Wednesday, August August 16th at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. and on Friday, August 18th at The Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718 718- 238 6500. That's Connors and Sullivan. 718 238 6500. Or go to ConnorsandSullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. 
For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got a question for Mike? Call him at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. Okay, well, let's welcome back. And Beth, straight to the question. We don't have a lot of time. All right. This is from Gemma. My mom passed away in January 2015. She left a will leaving her property in New York to five of her children, but the property is still listed in her name, and we would like to know how we can go about having this transferred from her name into the children's names. Thanks. Okay, one of the missing questions here, was the will probated? Now, um, that means was the will filed in court? Did the surrogate's court judge approve the will? If the surrogate court judge has approved the will, then we can write a deed from the estate into the five children's names. If the surrogate court did not have, does not have the will on file and it's not approved, technically the children could sell the house if there's no will on file, if there are no children disinherited or spouse disinherited or something like that. The children could sign a deed two years after death into the what we call the heirs of law, which would be uh, assuming in this case, and I can't assume anything, that's why it's hard to take questions off the email, assuming that these are the only children, there's no other child, there's no spouse, there's no predeceased child with grandchildren involved, the heirs could sign a deed over to themselves two years after death if the will has been not filed and, uh, and nobody objects, obviously. If the will was probated, then the executor of the will ordinarily would sign a deed over to the uh, to the five children. If it was a specific beque- uh, device, technically you don't have to do anything, but you still might re- sign a deed over because it's easier for the insurance company if they have a deed, you know, whose name is on the deed, who's the insured person on the deed, so forth and so on. It shouldn't be a major problem either way, but you should do something. Um, and, and I'm going to make a side note. If this a husband and wife, husband dies, and the deed reads John Smith and Mary Smith his wife. The surviving spouse doesn't really have to do anything with the deed. She can. It's no big deal to leave the deceased husband's name on the deed. That's not a problem. Of course, in the long run, what she may want to do is put that house in a trust so she avoids probate on that house when she passes away. But there's no obligation, let's say, between husband and wife. Husband passes away. House automatically passes to wife. She doesn't have to go through probate. She doesn't have to do a court proceeding. And she doesn't have to change the deed. Now, I know every once in a while an insurance company would say, we want a copy of the new deed to show who's entitled. And yes, if you need to, we can do that for you. But for the most part, there's no obligation to change a deed between husband and wife if the husband dies and it's you know it goes to the wife. Even if it's brother or sister, if it's joint tenants with right of survivorship, again, there's no obligation to, uh, to change the deed. And if you have any questions about that real estate, give us a call at Connors & Sullivan. Schedule an appointment. We'll talk it over, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Now, we've got to take a short break because we talk too much about Otto. Our precious little yeah, schnauzer. Yeah, we, we have to take a short break, and we're going to be talking about an old friend of the show, William Hazelgrove, who has a book out about Teddy Roosevelt.
Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call 888-943-2646. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. A few months ago, we had on William Hazelgrove, who had a book about Woodrow Wilson's wife, Madam President. He's written another book now about another about a great president, Theodore Roosevelt. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Forging a President, How the Wild West Created Teddy Roosevelt. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the Alamo. And we stayed at the Menger Hotel. And all over the Menger Hotel were pictures of Teddy Roosevelt and when he formed the Rough Riders back in 1898. You're talking about the roots of Teddy Roosevelt and his Wild West days? Yeah, I'm really picking up him in 1883. His wife wife and his mother actually died on the same day, one from Bryce's disease, one from typhoid fever. And so then what Teddy Roosevelt did was he went west. He went to the Badlands, which was still the Wild West. The West wasn't closed until 1890. And he goes out there, and he basically becomes this cowboy. Now, he goes out there a very sickly asthmatic. In fact, he was so sickly that his dad would put him on a carriage and take him riding through New York, have him hanging off the sides of the carriage, just to get air into his lungs. I mean, that's how bad his asthma was. So when he goes out there, he's this very sickly, distraught guy. When he comes back, he's the barrel-chested Teddy Roosevelt that we know. So, you know, it's my thesis in the book, and it's really an adventure story, that you know, what happened to him out west is what created the Teddy Roosevelt we know. 
So what did happen to him out west? Well, he gets out there. The first thing happens to him is he's out there looking for a horse, and five Indians come galloping up on him with Winchesters over his head. Now, at this time, Geronimo's still out there. There's a lot of atrocities. Teddy Roosevelt swings down, puts the Winchester over the pommel of his saddle, and points it to the guy in the middle. They stop. They actually have some English. They say, hey, we're friendly. Teddy Roosevelt says, no, stay right there. And then they cursed at him. And he said later that he really knew they knew English. And he, you know, he holds him off all the way back. So, again, this is this little guy with glasses. You know, he has a little Brooks Brothers buckskin coat. And, you know, yet he seems to have this grit. And out in the West, you know, you, you're as good as your word. And so this begins, you know, this process where Teddy Roosevelt backs up what he says. Another thing that happens to him is he's out, again, looking for horses. It gets dark. And he goes to a town called Mingusville. And Mingusville is this wild West town. He goes into a saloon, just looking for a place to sleep. And he sees a guy who's shooting up the town, of course, or shooting up the saloon. Teddy sits down behind a stove, thinks this guy will just ignore him. He comes over, he says, well, Four Eyes is buying for the house. And Teddy Roosevelt is like, you know, I'm going to ignore this guy. He says it again, Four Eyes is buying for the house. Teddy Roosevelt stands up and he says, well, if I have to, I have to. Hits him with a right, a left, and knocks the guy out cold. And again, you know, this is a very small little guy, but they're seeing that he has a lot of grit. Where did this personality come from? Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt really was created by the fact that he was so sickly, that you know, he had to struggle to breathe. His father said to him famously when he was uh, you know, a boy, you, you have the mind, but you don't have the body. And without the body, the mind cannot go far. So you have to build yourself up. So he started that very early. But he really did struggle all his life to breathe. So this grit, this determination, this you know, putting himself through hardship, which is what he would do out west. Again, you know, another time he's out galloping along on the roundup, and basically on a roundup you bring your you try and get the cattle in. He goes off a cliff down, you know, into the Little Missouri River. His horse flips over. He lands. The horse lands. He jumps back on the horse and continues on the roundup. I really began to believe in destiny when I was researching this book because Teddy Roosevelt continues to survive when other people certainly would have been killed. Now, I understand he was also involved in law enforcement. He was deputy sheriff when he was out west. Yeah, what he did was he actually um, he sort of made himself an unofficial sheriff. And so what he did was there was a, a boat, and it was his, and these, these guys stole it. Most people would say, oh, they stole my boat. Well, it's on the Little Missouri River in the dead of winter. Terry Roosevelt builds a boat, another boat, takes three guys with him, and chases these guys. who so were bona fide outlaws. Um, catches up with them, you know, gets the drop on them, and then he takes them 10 days all the way back to town to turn them to the sheriff where he gets $35 for, which is sort of like a fee to bring in a bad guy. And, you know, again, you know, most people wouldn't have bothered, but this is Teddy Roosevelt who continually puts himself through this hardship to sort of, you know, see if he can do it, to forge it. Another time, you know, he, he I'm not going to call it his bucket list, but he wants to catch it. He wants to kill a grizzly. So he's, he's up in the mountains. They can't find the grizzly. They can't find it. The grizzly rears up in front of him. And this is a monstrous animal. And, you know, about three, or, three to four feet away from him. And Teddy Roosevelt pulls up his rifle and shoots, shoots him right between the eyes. Again, you know, anybody else would have just been, you know, horribly mangled and certainly killed. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, though, seems to have this luck. And other people recognize this in him. You know, it's interesting. He was sitting around like, campfire with some other cowboys and this one cowboy said you know you won't always be out here running cattle and Teddy Roosevelt says no no you know my life in the east is over that ended when my wife and my mother died 
He said, no, one day you'll go back east, and one day you'll be president. And they weren't the only people who would say that to him. So people saw something in him very early. Now, how did the West affect his, you know, he developed being a leader at that time. So how did that affect his political career, the Spanish-American War, you know, police commissioner and so forth? Actually, the Spanish-American War, he actually used a lot of the same guys, the cowboys that he met out there out west. So he brought all them in. He, he really believed in the code of the cowboy. And he thought these were outstanding men because there were men who had a moral compass and you know, backed up what they said. Now here's a great example of, of Teddy Roosevelt you know, being forged in the west. He's, in, uh, he's campaigning against Wilson. And Taft, of course, is running and he splits the ticket and goes, forms the Bull Moose Party, which Republicans are furious. Okay. He's in Milwaukee to give a speech. A guy named Charles Schrank comes up on him and shoots him in the chest. The bullet goes through his glasses case, through his folded speech, lodges in his chest. Teddy Roosevelt checks his mouth to see if he's bleeding from his lungs. He's not. And everybody around him says, you've got to go to the hospital. He says, absolutely not. I came here to give a speech. I'm going to give a speech. He goes and he speaks for 90 minutes while bleeding under his coat. Then he gets on a train, changes his shirt, Sleeps like a baby all the way to Chicago where he goes to the hospital and they decide to leave the bullet in there. And it's in there the day he died. So, again, this kind of grit, this sort of you know, toughness was certainly forged out there in the Badlands. And, you know, you were asking about you know, what did he do as president and what, how did the West influence him? Well, I would argue that, you know, sending the great white fleet around, you know, walk softly, carry a big stick. Well, these are, these are ethics of the West, the Panama Canal. Going down there when everybody else said, no, you can't do this, Teddy Roosevelt said, nonsense. And you got to remember, he was our youngest president at 42. And the country's very young in the early 20th century. So we, they sort of matched each other, and Teddy Roosevelt brought that swagger, that cowboy swagger to the country. And that sort of, you know, we sort of took that on as almost uh, our attitude. And, you know, you see that all the way through the presidents, you know, all the way up to Ronald Reagan. There is this cowboy aspect to the presidency. A reader of this book, what would you like him to take away? What was your purpose behind writing this book? You know, I first of all, when I write history, I want it to be exciting, and I want readers to be immersed in it. And I think with, uh, you know, Forging a President, How the Wild West Created Teddy Roosevelt, you know, you go out there and you live this. You know, you live it with them. So at the end, and I want the reader at the end to be able to draw his own conclusions. Did this forge the Teddy Roosevelt that we know now, this vigorous guy who would go swimming the Potomac every day with his cabinet, who would ride a horse every day to Washington, who would just do things that other people would probably not do, who would challenge himself. I, I think at the end, the reader, first of all, will have a heck of a time, you know, with this great adventure. It's basically an adventure story. I mean, he's three years out in the Wild West, and you live that with him. But at the end, I hope you come to a finer appreciation and know a little bit more about the guy who really set the tone of the country in the early 20th century. The name of the book, Forging a President, How the Wild West Created Teddy Roosevelt by William Hazelgrove. Thank you for bringing history to life. Oh, thank you for having me. I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man, but there's a true freedom 
to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens? Will my to them? assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors and Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors and Sullivan, plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. As many of you listen to the show know, a lot of times we like to interview World War II veterans because World War II ended a little over 70 years ago, and it's very precious when we have time to talk to one of these veterans. And I'm very proud right now to have with me Harold Brown, one of the Tuskegee Airmen. How you doing today, sir? I am just doing great. Okay, so now some of the younger members in the audience, and actually some of our older ones, they may not know who who were the Tuskegee Airmen. Well, the Tuskegee Airmen were a group of black pilots. And let me just give you just about a few minutes of history. As you recall, back in the 30s and 40s, uh, we had long-standing policies on racial discrimination. As a matter of fact, uh, not only by law, but by tradition, and we had the so-called uh, equal but separate law that went into effect. And uh, as we start approaching World War II, it was evident that they were going to need a whole lot of pilots. And there became a big argument between the War Department made up of generals and so forth, and we had people on our side like... Uh, Senator Truman, uh, Senator Dirksen from Illinois, who was supporting us in terms of us getting a shot at becoming military pilots. Well, there was a big argument, as you would expect, but uh, our guys finally won out, and they finally decided to start a small training program with a limited number of people down in the Tuskegee Institute. Well, it was Tuskegee, but right at the uh, Tuskegee Institute, which is now Tuskegee University. So this is how the whole thing started, and that was announced in 1941. Now, the initial requirements were for 
college graduates or people which had two or three years of college. And as you would expect, that pool of potential pilots rapidly ran dry, both white and black. And particularly amongst blacks, there wasn't that many college graduates back in those days. So then someone said, well, let's just take high school kids. If they can pass the exam and if they can pass the physical, we'll accept them into military flight training. And that's how I got in. I graduated from high school in 1942. I was 17 years old. I had a love affair with airplanes when I was back in the sixth grade. So as soon as I graduated, I immediately went down, took my, uh, took my written exams. When I turned 18 in August, I took my physical exam, passed it, and I got my letter in December of 1942 that I had been selected for flight training. And then in January is when I left home on my way down to Biloxi, Mississippi, where they gave us our, our basic training in high school, I mean in the military, and then from Biloxi, Mississippi, we were sent up to uh, Tuskegee Institute. Okay, so you're starting your way in your military career. After your training, where were you sent? Where were you stationed? Okay, I was uh, the first squadron they sent over the 99th to North Africa. The group, the 332nd Fighter Group, was finally sent over to the European Theater, and they were stationed in uh, Italy at a place called Ramatelli, which was uh, right on the Adriatic Sea. And it was just so about 35 kilometers north of Folger. And uh, the the, uh, 15th Air Force had just about 600 bombers and roughly uh, seven fighter uh, groups. They had four groups of P-51s and three groups of uh, P-38s. And we were all stationed in that general area which meant we were flying from north to south up in the Europe uh, against all the targets. And the mighty 8th Air Force over in England was flying from east to west, uh, hitting targets. To give you some idea, the 8th Air Force, they call it the mighty 8th, they could put up 2,000 bombers and 1,200 fighters for maximum effort. So they were a big, big outfit. Now, what was your job? What was your mission? The 15th and the 8th Air Force had the same mission, and that was strategic bombings. We were escorting the heavy bombers, the B-17s and the B-24s, from their home bases in the various targets up in in Europe. I understand you were shot down. Unfortunately, you understand correctly, sir. I was (laughs) shot down. (laughs) So what happened? Can, can you tell us what happened? Sure, I do a rough little, uh, well, I can tell you uh, about a couple of bad things that happened to me. The first time was on my 12th mission, and we got uh, tangled up with the ME-262. Now, the ME-262 is a brand-new twin-engine jet that just came in operation towards the end of the war, very fast, 100 miles an hour faster 
than our P-51s. And they jumped us one day, and uh, they attacked our bombers. My wingman and I picked one up, and we followed them all the way down to the ground. Well, he's going at maximum speed, whether he's going straight down or whether he's flying straight and level. Now, when we go straight down in our 51s, we are not at our maximum speed. So I'm picking up a little speed on him, and he's not separating as fast away from me as he could if he was flying straight and level. Long story short, he led us over a flat trap. I got hit, and my wingman and I were trying to get back, and I had fuel exhaustion, but I did get back to northern Italy uh, out of fuel and spotted an old abandoned landing strip, but that sticked it on the landing strip, tore it to pieces, and as I tell all of the kids and things that I tell them this story, I said, what do you think I did then after I crash landed? And they looked very puzzled. I said, well, I jumped out of the aircraft, and I brushed off my uniform, and I said, fantastic job, Harold, great job. And they get a big kick out of it. But on my 30th mission, we were on a strafing mission, and uh, my aircraft was damaged uh, from an exploding locomotive. Just as I passed over it, it blew up, damaged my aircraft, uh, we were just south of Linz, Austria, uh, hilly country, right there close to the Alps. And I had to bail out of it. There was no, and I had no other choices. So I bailed out, and uh, I was picked up about 30 minutes after bailing out by a couple of constables. And then I started upon what was the most horrible adventure I had during the entire war. Now, what was it like for you, an African-American captured by the Nazis? That becomes quite interesting. When they picked me up, they took me back to, and by they, I'm talking about the two constables who uh, escorted me back into the little village that we had been strafing. And if you stop and think about it a minute, Supposing you were there, and here comes a bunch of airplanes shooting up the place, not shooting at people, shooting at legitimate targets. Shrapnel's flying all over the place. A piece of shrapnel might hit your wife, your kid, your ma, your dad, whatever. You're going to be pretty doggone angry when you see this guy bail out, and all of a sudden here he comes walking in with the two constables. And that's what I faced. 40, about 40 of the angriest people I have ever witnessed in my life. And they made it perfectly clear, they were hollering and screaming at me, that they were going, they were going to do me in. And they made certain that I understood that I was going to die in, in the next few minutes. Well, as luck would have it, there's always one good person in the crowd, and there was a constable way in the back who slowly walked around to the front, stepped in front of me, put a round in his rifle, and kept those people from killing me. Now, if you think about that for a moment, that constable had to know everybody in that crowd. He probably even had some of his own friends and family in that crowd. 
but he kept those people from killing me. We backed up about over the mountain to a couple of blocks. We went into a pub. He ran everybody out. We barricaded ourselves in that little pub. And then as evening came on, this was wintertime in March of 1945, they slowly started to disperse. And by midnight, they had all dispersed. And we went out the back door and we walked about four or five kilometers down to the next village where they got on the phone or someone. They called down and in a short while, a couple of soldiers came in and picked me up. And from that point, I was in the custody of, uh, of the German army. And uh, the only thing that you really had to worry about then was to get into a prison camp safely, because you were traveling from where you shot down to the prison camps. And my first uh, prison camp was in Nuremberg, Germany, and that was also where they had the interrogation center, which had come from Frankfurt because the Americans were advancing pretty closely. But if you were able to do that and didn't attempt to escape, then you had no problems. But in answer to your question, how do they treat me, I tell everyone jokingly that that was the first time that I had experienced uh, integration in my life because I was there with Canadian pilots, English pilots, Australian pilots, you name it. And we were all there together, and no one could care less. We were all POWs, and all we had on mine on our mind was just surviving the war, and all we had to do was suffer a little hungry, and we were always hungry. Uh, but that's all we had to do, and, and the only other thing is don't attempt to escape, and you could survive the war, and that's what we did. Now, where were you when the, when the war was over? Uh, as I said, uh, I first went to Nuremberg, but I was only there a short while, about 10 days. There was about 10,000 of us there. We were on a forced march, and we walked from Nuremberg down to Moosburg. Moosburg is about 30 kilometers north of Munich, and there were already thousands of prisoners in the Moosburg, which was a very well-known prison camp. And that is where I was at, and within a couple of weeks or so, uh, Patton, General Patton, came through on April the 29th and tore down the fence and liberated all of us. So how would you feel at that moment? Can you describe it? Happy. <laughs> Very happy. As a matter of fact, I don't know uh, uh, what you know about General Patton, but you know he was a big man, about six foot, two inches tall. And as you've seen all of his picture, he wears the breeches and the boots, and he wears two pistols on his hip, and he had one of the filthiest mouths you ever want to hear. Every other word was, use your imagination, and that's what came out of his mouth. And he loved the crowd, and with every one of those nice four-letter words he used, the whole crowd, there were thousands of us standing there as he was standing on his Jeep, they were screaming, yay, Patton. Yay, Patton. And he was responding, I'm on my way to Berlin, and when I get there, I'm going to 
catch that paper hanging dash 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 and I'm going to do dash 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 to him you can fill in the dashes and uh, that was what he was telling us that he was going to do but that was Patton I'll tell you a little story about Patton you know he always carried two guns and uh, their story isn't supposed to be true that this reporter was interviewing Patton and he says sir why do you carry those two ivory handle pistols on your hips? And he says, son, let me tell you something. The only man who carries a pearl handle pistol is a pimp down in New Orleans. These are ivory handle pistols, and don't you ever forget it. <laughs> a true story, but it sounds pretty good, just like Patton. All right, now the war's over. What do you decide to do for your career? Well, I came home from the war. I was 20 years old, wasn't old enough to vote, couldn't go into a bar legally. But I decided that I wanted to make it a career, so I stayed in the military until I served for 23 years in the, uh, in the military. Uh, I went back. My first assignment was back to Tuskegee. And... Uh, they only had, that was the only base we had besides one other base, uh, Godman Phil, which had the other Tuskegee pilots, the B-25 pilots who didn't get overseas because the war ended too soon. And we all wound up at Logbourne Air Force Base, and that was from 1946 to 1949. Now, an interesting thing, when I was down at Tuskegee, I joined them in September of 1945, and I was an instrument flight instructor. Well, I was up practicing one day underneath the hood, and you have a safety pilot up in front. And as we were flying along, all of a sudden there was this horrible noise and rocking of the aircraft, and I said, my God, we had a mid-air collision. And I come out from underneath the hood, and we had had a mid-air collision, the uh, instructor and cadet in the other uh, T-6 bailed out of their aircraft. We took off their whole epionage. Our aircraft was heavily damaged, but we managed uh, to land it safely. So I was just at that time 21 years and two months old, and I've had a crash landing. I bailed out of an aircraft, and I had, and I survived a mid-air collision. So I figure I was a pretty lucky young guy. But I stayed in, and uh, I, you know, served in Korea. I came back, and I finally wound up in the Strategic Air Command SAC, and I was flying the B-47. The B-47 was the first six-jet engine bomber. And uh, that's what I did the last 10 years of my career uh, in the Air Force. And I retired with 23 years of service. Now, if somebody wants to read about your career, you've got a book out. What's the name of your book? I'm looking at a stack of them right now in big, bold red letters. And you know our P-51s were all painted with, with red tails. And we were known as the Red Tail Fighter Pilots. Well, in big, bold letters, they got it in red, and it is, Keep Your Airspeed Up, The Story of a Tuskegee Airman. 
Keep your airspeed up. Where can we get the book? Keep your airspeed up. The story of a Tuskegee Airman. Where can we get the book? Well, they're available at Amazon, almost all of the major bookstores, and I think they even have a, a Kindle version available. So it is uh, widely available. Uh, and I suppose if you wanted to get one fast, you know Amazon. You just give them a call, and in a day or two, it's at your foot, it's at your doorstep. So what are you doing with yourself now, Colonel, besides writing books and autographing books? Oh, my goodness. Uh, after I left the military, uh, I had been an instructor pilot all throughout my career, and I thought I would really like to continue in that field. So I went into education. I started with a little school in Columbus, Ohio, grade 13 and 14, and it was called the Columbus Area Technician School. We had three programs, 67 students, and 12 faculty members. Today, that school is 30,000 students enrolled, the largest community college in the state of Ohio, and is, is Columbus State Community College. I went up the ladder and became the vice president of the school, and when I retired from them, uh, we only had just about 10,000 students. But other than, other than going back to school, I went back and my Ph.D. from Ohio State back in 1973, I got my Ph.D. So I was in education. I retired from them in 1986. I then did what most retired educators do. I opened up Brown & Associate, a consulting firm. So I consulted, and I had a continuing contract with the Ohio State Board of Career Colleges and Schools, the Ohio State Agency, which regulates all of the profit-making schools in the state of Ohio. And I had a continuous contract with them until I quit them in 2012. And I also had my own private firm on the side. Uh, So that's what I did uh, uh, from 1986 up until 2012 when I retired from everything. Well, listen, thank you for sharing your story with us. Keep Your Airspeed Up by Dr. Brown, Colonel Brown. Thank you again. I hope your book does well. And if you're ever in New York, come see us. And I will most certainly do that. And I thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, It was really a pleasure. Okay. Well, again, thank you, Dr. Brown. Um, That is really one of the most remarkable stories that I've heard in, you know, whatever my career interviewing people. That. An extraordinary person. Yeah. I, I do hope he gets to New York. Where <laughs> yes. is he now? Where does he live? Ohio. Ohio? Yeah. Oh. You know, and we didn't get around to buying one of the books yet, so we better go ahead and do that. Uh. <laughs> I, I mean, that's one, of the, uh, I, that's one of the books. I'd like Michael to read that. I think that, I think that would be most inspiring. Okay. Now, if you get on our website, you can see a picture of Dr. Brown. And also, you know, like we... Didn't have a lot of time because we got misdirected here for a while. But if somebody has an email question, where do they call? Where do they send it? They send it to the answer at connorsandsullivan.com. Spell out everything. T H E answer 
at connorsandsullivan.com. Yeah. And we get to every email question. Now, sometimes we email it back, the answer or whatever. We may answer it, but sometimes we don't know enough or maybe it's more personal to read on air. Sometimes you can't answer them. Yeah, and sometimes there's personal information in there we don't necessarily want to, you know, discuss on the airway. All right. Next week, I think we're going to have an exciting show. Hopefully, we're going to have on Bruce Campbell, star of Army of Darkness, Ash versus the Evil Dead. Bubba Hotep. Bubba Hotep, yeah. So, you know, hopefully he'll be on next week. we got to still work out some of the details. But David Kincaid is telling us it's about time, you know, to head on home for tonight. So thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Hope you tune in next week. Again, if you want any information about state planning and elder law, give us a call at Connors and Sullivan. Bye-bye. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.